Last week we finished conflict with the Pharisees over money in Luke 16, concluding with Lazarus and the rich man. So what we're going to do is now back up to Luke 13, and we're going to talk about the call of the kingdom. And you see that the call of the kingdom to Israel is 13 verses 1 through 9. And then the call of the kingdom to Israel and the outsiders, or the outcasts. And that will be in Luke 14, starting in verse 12. The first part of the chiasm is where he's just talking to Israel. And when Israel doesn't respond properly, he expands the call not only to Israel, but the outcasts. We will probably get through both sides of the chiasm tonight because the first side of it, which is the call to Israel, is only nine verses. So we're in Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I don't know of anybody that knows what that is. If somebody does, by all means enlighten me, but I've been going through this for years and I have not ever figured out what that actually is. Obviously, something having to do with Pilate, who was the Roman procurate in Judea at that point. Something that the Romans did, and it had to do with the sacrifice, and I have no idea what's going on. Now, interestingly, just sort of as a background note, Pilate was headquarters in Jerusalem. Galilee, as you know, is clear up by the sea, and the fact that the Galileans are doing sacrifices indicates that they came down to Jerusalem and whatever happened, happened in Jerusalem. Say, I have no idea what or why. So verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's calling to Israel, and he is renewing the call to repentance that he made at the beginning of his ministry. So this is sort of the last shot, if you will, for Israel to listen up and repent. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Again, I have no idea what that's all about. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Obviously, he's referring to something that everybody knows about. I would suggest that perhaps an analogy would be those who died in the World Trade Center when it was hit by the Muslims. It would be something everybody would know about, so he would be able to refer to it without explaining it. Again, the idea here is not that these people perished because they were exceptionally bad. There are people, according to the grammar of this, that are every bit as bad and are every bit as much in need of repentance. And if they don't do it, they will also perish. So this is the first part of the call, if you will, the call to repentance. The comment was, 
much like Daniel, who was righteous, but grew up in Babylon, the idea here is that if the nation doesn't repent, then everybody is going to suffer, which, of course, they do. So that takes us now down to verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. First off, he's been duking it out with the Pharisees. This is a barnyard reference. And he is speaking in small towns. So these are small agricultural towns that he's talking in. These are not big cities. So he's not talking in Jerusalem or someplace like that. It would be a small town. So as he's been duking it out with the Pharisees, the peasants around there, for example, would sort of snicker at the image of packing the Pharisees' feet with manure. It's that kind of a reference and aimed at the common people and meant to take down the Pharisees because pop up a level. In Scripture, Israel is often represented as a fig tree. So the use of the metaphor of a fig tree, again, would have been familiar to the people listening to the story. And the idea that the fig tree is not producing fruit is clearly a reference to Israel. And so what he says when he's talking to the vine dresser is it's taken up room. We could be planting something else in that plot. Let's get rid of that fig tree, which is barren, and put something in that will bear fruit. And, of course, the vine dresser says, hey, let me pack it with manure and try one more year. If you combine that with the call to repentance, the idea here is he is giving them an opportunity to bear fruit, which, of course, they do not. In fact, the fig tree does get cut down by the Romans in 70 AD, but the idea of repent or you will perish and then parenthesis, start producing fruit or you will perish is the message of those two vignettes. Comment was the three years. And of course, you all know that once Yeshua started his ministry, his ministry lasted three years. So what he's saying is, I have been speaking to Israel for these three years. I've been calling them to repent. They aren't doing it. I'm ready to root up the fig tree because it's not bearing any fruit. And the vine dresser, which I'm assuming is the father, says, pack some manure around their feet and let's see if they pay attention. Both cases, it's repent or perish. So that's the first half of the chiasm. So now what we're going to do is we're going to skip to the second half of the chiasm, which is in Luke 14. We're going to pick that up in verse 12. And the idea here is he is at dinner with someone. 
So he's using a banquet metaphor. So verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you are repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This, by the way, is Judaism 101. If you read the Musar books, for example, one of the things they talk about is doing mitzvah benefits for people who can't repay you. In Judaism, the ultimate mitzvah is taking care of a corpse because there's no possibility that the dead one is going to repay you for your kindness. So this idea of doing kindnesses for people who can't repay you is laced throughout all of Judaism. So the fact that he's saying it here in this context wouldn't have been strange to them. You know, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. He's talking Judaism 101 when he does that. Now, he's also sort of by way of uh, a bank shot been dealing with the Pharisees who are lovers of money and are lovers of social position. And the implication in all of this is they're not doing that. When he does this, he is not, in fact, inventing something new. He's simply calling them to do what they are supposed to be doing. His whole ministry is not doing anything new here, just you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and you know better. That's what's going on there. So now down to 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is by way of hallelujah, amen, at a Baptist picnic. You know, it's sort of, you know, preach it, brother. You know, that kind of thing. That's the kind of remark it is. Verse 16, but he said to him, the one who said that, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. All right, so now he's going into a parable. The setup, obviously, is he is at somebody's house for dinner. First thing he does is reminds them of the Jewish tradition of hospitality and the Jewish tradition of doing things for people who can't repay you. Oh, by the way, you guys aren't doing that. And then you have this guy pipe up, yell, hallelujah, preach it, brother. And so then the next thing he does is he goes into this parable, which is by way of rebuking this guy, because this guy apparently is not getting the sarcasm. So verse 16 now. But he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Stop there for a minute. This is a small town. 
We've all just been through a wedding in the congregation. Nobody in the congregation would have considered scheduling something else on Sunday because that's when Angel was having her wedding. Everybody knew it. Most of the congregation was involved in some way. So for somebody then to schedule something that would conflict would be a tremendous social faux pas. So that's sort of the first setup. This guy has a great banquet and invited many. Before he set the date and so forth, he has sent out invitations and everybody has accepted. It is not the case that this is a surprise party for anybody. This is one of those things that's been known for a long time, just like the wedding we just had. Everybody knows about it. Everybody has it on their calendar. So the idea of that being a surprise is a non-starter. Second thing, of course, as you all know, in that part of the world, at that time in the world, there was no refrigeration. So you stored your meat on the hoof. When you were getting ready for a feast, what you would do is you would go out and you would slaughter your animals on the day before the feast and you would get ready. So once you have begun the process of preparing for the feast, there's no place to put the leftovers. There's no place to store, oh, I was expecting 50 people, so I slaughtered a calf and I need to put part of it away in the fridge because only 20 people came. It's not an option. So the number of animals that get slaughtered is a function of how many people have accepted invitations. What he said is, I have slaughtered my animals. I have cooked. Everything's ready. Come now. And so the idea of somebody coming up with a last-minute excuse is a tremendous insult. The next thing, of course, is all of these excuses are transparent lies. The idea, I just bought a field. Well, buying a piece of real estate is not something that you do on the spur of the moment or without inspecting it. So you have this major social event in town, and you just all of a sudden, on the spur of the moment, decide to go buy a field, and I haven't seen it yet. That is obviously a transparent lie. Not only are they insulting him by not showing up, they're spitting in his face and trying to tell him it's raining. Same thing with the team of oxen. If you're going to buy a team of oxen like that, they would have tested them, tried them out, made sure that they worked as a team. All of that would have been done ahead of time before purchasing the oxen. The idea of, I just bought a whole bunch of oxen, I want to see if they're going to plow together, is a transparent lie. And then, of course, oh, I just got married. (laughs) There you have two major social events conflicting with one another. These are not just false They are in-your-face, transparent, insulting lies. And everybody that listens to this would know that. Who would accept an invitation to a banquet and then not only not show up, but would insult you in front of everybody, insult you to your servants? This whole thing is just incomprehensible, and it's designed that way.
So now we're all the way down to verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, I guess, and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind and lame. Notice back up in verse 12 through 14, he's talking about don't just invite people who can pay you back socially. Invite people who can't pay you back. That's the mitzvah. So this guy has set up his feast, has been insulted by the prominent people who have been invited. So he says, go out and bring in the crippled, the blind, and the lame, which are the ones that we were talking about in the first vignette. And by the way, the first call to Israel back in Luke 13 that we just did is Israel only. This now is everybody, anybody. We just want bodies in here. So I don't care if they're good Jews. I don't care if they're upstanding citizens. I don't care about any of this. I just want people to fill my banquet hall. The idea here is Yeshua first comes to Israel, preaches repentance, calls them to come into the kingdom, etc. When Israel doesn't do it, the call then gets broadened to the Gentiles. The first half of the chiasm is it's Israel. The second half of the chiasm is Israel didn't show up. So now we're going to bring everybody in. So we're down to verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. If you're some stranger just asks you to a banquet, you say, oh, well, thank you very much for the invitation. And you sort of think it's probably pro forma and, uh, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. I wasn't invited originally, and eh, no thank you. But this is, I really want you to come. This is, I am sincere about this. I'll give you another example. Let's say that Kay and I and Gaylene were talking about having dinner together on Shabbat, Arab Shabbat. And we're talking, and Mike overhears us. And we turn around and say, hey, Mike, you come too. And Mike, at that point, realizes that the only reason we've asked him is because he's heard the conversation that it would be awkward for us not to invite him. He says, oh, well, thanks for the invitation, but I've really got something to do. The polite thing has been done on both sides. But we really want Mike to come. So one of us walks over and gently grabs Mike by the arm. No, seriously, please come to Arab Shabbat. At that point, he realizes it's not just a polite invitation, but it's a sincere invitation. There are sects of Christianity who take this as permission to coerce people, like what the Inquisition did, for example 
I mean, there, there's all sorts of examples in history where people have been forcibly converted. And this is one of the places that they use as justification. There are several of these banquet vignettes in the Gospels. And each one of them teaches something slightly different. What this one is teaching is that for three and a half years, he has been speaking to Israel and calling them to the banquet. And they have given him transparently false excuses why they can't come. So what he's saying is now the call is open to anybody who will come. So that's the sense of this parable. But if you don't know the etiquette, if you will, of the Middle East, you sort of miss what's going on with compel them to come and so forth. It's really nothing more than just coming up close and gently grabbing you by the arm and say, no, no, please come, I really mean it. To get past the, gee, that was just a polite invitation because I happened to be standing in the room when the two of you were talking about having supper. The comment was, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You could interpret that, and people have, that the covenant with Israel has been abrogated. I don't believe that's the case. And the reason I don't is that we're talking here about the elite leadership of Israel. When the resurrection happened, virtually all of the converts were Jewish. It then went from Jerusalem and Israel out to the world, and the first place it always went was to the synagogue. In fact, I happen to be reading the book of Acts right now in my normal Bible rotation. And one of the things that it says very clearly is every time Paul gets into a new town, the first place he goes is the synagogue. So the idea that this abrogates the covenant with Israel, I believe, is not sound. I think that it was withheld for the generation of leadership, which are the Pharisees and the priests and so forth who were not doing what they were supposed to do. Sort of like the generation in Babylon that goes into exile. Yep, there are going to be consequences here. The comment was, this isn't Israel, it is those who have rejected the invitation. In Old Testament speak, those who are cut off. Over and over again it says, if you do this, you will be cut off which I have always taken to mean you're out of the tribe. You're on your own. Clearly, the man giving the banquet is ticked. He has been publicly insulted, and he's upset about it. What I will suggest to you is God and Yeshua are also ticked at the way Yeshua was received by the leadership of Israel. So you have the parable of the rich man who buys a vineyard and leases it out to tenants, and he keeps sending servants back to get some of the fruit. And finally he says, well, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And the tenants look at it and said, aha, that's the heir. If we kill the heir, 
then there's nobody else to take this vineyard and will get possession. So lots of parables having to do with tenants, guests, whatever, rejecting doing what they're supposed to do. The comment was that in the Tanakh, Israel corporately gets rewarded or punished, and you're correct. They will here too, because failing to repent, what's going to happen is the Romans are going to sand them off. Question in verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The question is, is this corporate Israel or is this the individuals who were involved in getting rid of Yeshua? Short answer is, I don't know. Certainly, corporate Israel does get punished in 70 AD. But then again, Judaism survives. So I regard the Roman exile as being very much in the same vein as the Babylonian exile. Israel continues to exist, but the generation that led them into the place where God finally says, I've had enough, that generation pretty much perishes. The covenant with Israel does not get abrogated. They still exist. All right, so we're now down to verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I have always regarded this as biblical hyperbole. The Bible tends to use hyperbole a lot, and I regard this that way. In fact, there was a preacher that I listened to years and years and years ago talking about his marriage. And he says, my wife understands that she comes second, and Yeshua comes first. And she likes it that way, because if Yeshua is first, that means that I am doing the things that I'm supposed to do as a husband and a father and so forth. And the marriage is very good when she's number two and he's number one. So I regard this in that same vein. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and is not able to finish. One of the things I'm doing is listening to Ron Dart. And he's talking about Paul. And Paul for example, regards himself as the least of the apostles and persecuted the church and all that kind of stuff. And when Yeshua visited Ananias in Syria and said, go to this guy Paul and restore his sight, Ananias says, uh, wait a minute. This guy has got letters from the high priest. He's been throwing people in jail. He's been doing all sorts of stuff. And Yeshua says to him, He's going to have a change of heart here. And one of the things is going to happen is I will teach him how much he will suffer for the gospel. And what happens to Paul is what goes around comes around. Paul was involved in the stoning of Stephen. 
Paul was hauling people out of their homes and throwing them in jail. All those kinds of things. And what Paul then had was a really physically tough time in his ministry. He got stoned. He got beaten. He got thrown into prison. He was shipwrecked. All sorts of really difficult things happened to Paul as a result of his apostleship. What Yeshua is saying here is just because you decide to join the kingdom doesn't mean that all of a sudden things are all going to be marshmallows and hot dogs. There's going to be a heavy cost to being a disciple. And you should recognize that there will be a cost going in less when you get in and suddenly realize what the cost is that you then back out. And that's what this idea of starting to build and then not finishing. That's what he's talking about. The cost of discipleship is going to be very expensive this side of going to meet the Lord. You need to understand that and you need to count the cost before you start. Otherwise, people are going to mock you. The comment was one of the costs could be your relationship with your family. Very much. And in fact, that happens fairly frequently. Families and communities will shun those who suddenly come to belief. Happens all the time. Verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. By the way, in military history, the instances where 10,000 defeat 20,000 are a dime a dozen. So the idea of going and meeting a superior force with an inferior force and conquering, is it, it is not the case that he said, oh, it's two to one, I guess I won't do this. What he's saying is, with what I have, am I going to be able to prevail? And if he figures he can, he'll go to war. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Several things. I understand what he's driving at. I do not understand that analogy at all. First off, I don't know of anybody that put salt on the soil. That's what the Romans used to do when they conquered a city. They would flatten it and then they would sow the earth with salt so nobody could rebuild the city and get agriculture to go for a number of years until the salt finally leached out of the soil. So throwing salt on the soil, I have no idea what's going on there. There may be something about the way they did salt or something like that back then that I don't understand, which is entirely possible. So I don't know how salt loses its saltiness. I just don't know the answer to any of that. But I understand the metaphor. 
The metaphor is very clear. I just don't understand that particular example. The whole point is that if something has changed so that it is no longer useful for its original purpose, it is thrown away. Comment was, there's a common comment in his Bible that says salt was used as a catalyst to help burn cow manure. Full stop slash. If that's true, and I'm not doubting it, I just don't know. One of the things that is routinely used for fuel is cow manure. Used in India, for example, and so forth, because it's processed straw. Ah, the question is in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What I take that to be is back where he's talking about, fear not, little flock, your father knows that you need these things. You know, don't worry, you can't add a, an hour to your lifespan, you know, all that kind of stuff. The idea is not that you will lack the material stuff that you need to do what you have to do. The idea is it all belongs to him. There are monastic orders and so forth that take vows of poverty. God does not teach poverty. There's nothing sinful about being poor, but as Tevye says, it's no great honor either. And what God does is he motivates us with wealth. If you follow me, your crops are going to be good, your barns are going to be full, your sheep won't miscarry, your enemies will flee before you. I mean, those are all physical things. So the way I take this is you have to emotionally detach yourself from it we have a card out there. You use the car to drive around. But if God says you need to get rid of that car, okay. That's one of the problems with Scripture is you had a God that came to the Hebrews and you had a Hebrew culture that collided with a Greek culture. And the Greeks read all this stuff from their own perspective, and so you wind up getting all sorts of weird interpretations. So anyway, in chapter 15, we are going to have three lost things. So we'll tackle that in chapter 15 next time.